When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today, August 9th, is episode 92. Well, just ahead, a plus-size win, a plus-size retailer, Torrid, with first-quarter results that were fantastic. Plus, warning signs for beer can maker Crown Holdings as the thirst for hard seltzers dries up. And big ambitions for a publicly traded cryptocurrency trading company and Coinbase competitor, Voyager Digital. I'm going to sit down with the CEO, Voyager Digital CEO, Steve Ehrlich. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your your company watch list and track key events and mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to Drill on any of your favorite podcast platforms. We don't care, as long as you're happy. But we'd be happier if you listen to every show, make it a part of your daily routine. Click subscribe so you can catch every episode. And the Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind Stocks and Move, and we've got executive producer Isaac Webster, and he got the three most important business stories of the day. Corey, U.S. jobless claims hit a new pandemic low as employers retained workers. Last week's initial filings for unemployment benefits fell to 310,000. Claims have trended lower since mid-July, a sign employers are holding on to workers despite a rise in coronavirus cases tied to the spread of the Delta variant. Yeah, interesting how this broke on a state-to-state level. So the states that were up the most were California, Michigan, and Louisiana the most. States that actually saw a decrease in jobless claims were New York, Florida, and most of all, Missouri. So what I chalked it up to, you know, so big increase in Louisiana. Louisiana and California have very little in common uh, in most things, but um, uh, because of the hurricane that hit Louisiana, it may have something to do with the unemployment claims last month. Um, and, uh, you know, California and Michigan, both sort of um, coronavirus uh, uh, shutdowns, maybe in California, I don't know about Michigan, but Missouri, who knows, uh, in terms of a decrease. I guess things staying open there. Um, and, and what we're seeing also, you remember what the thing we heard earlier this week where following the mobility of people might tell us more than mask ma- mandates and infection rates. Yeah, you know, I you did you know I'm from Missouri? I was born and raised in Missouri. The show me state. Do you know I have family from Missouri too? I think we've talked about this before, but every time every time I talk to my family or friends in Missouri, I'm a it's always a very scary conversation regarding 
the pandemic and the minds and thoughts of things like gun control. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, they haven't missed a beat. They haven't, in Missouri, it's my understanding, they uh, just don't want to wear masks and don't want to get vaccinated. So, uh, and yet, uh, and they don't, and don't want to stop hiring because again, unemployment, they're um, a decrease in 7.7 thousand uh, or 7,700, how we say in English, 7,700 uh, new files for unemployment over the previous month. All right. So our next story, the Biden administration is said to plan to require all employers with a hundred or more employees to require their workers to be vaccinated or undergo at least weekly COVID-19 testing. Businesses that don't comply can face fines up to $14,000 per violation, officials say. Now, the employers will also have to give workers pay time off to get vaccinated or to recover or to recover from any side effects of getting vaccinated. And Amazon says it's expanding its educational benefits by offering more than 700. It's more than 750,000 U.S. hourly employees the chance to enroll in fully paid bachelor's degree programs after 90 days of employment. Now, Amazon is uh, Amazon has said employees will be eligible to get degrees through educational institutions across the nation. The company is trying to attract job seekers in a tight labor market that we've been talking about and reduce turnover among its hourly workers. Wait, so hourly workers who work their three months are, can get uh, educational benefits, including college tuition, fully paid? You read that right. That's amazing. You know, I was sitting outside of a Starbucks with my daughter uh, yesterday uh, and saw that they had on their sign, you know, now hiring, benefits, dental, mental health, University of Arizona. I'm like, University of Arizona, or Arizona State University it was. I'm like, Arizona, oh, right, ASU has a really big online program. And here they are at a Starbucks in Northern California offering a, a good old-fashioned ASU education. There you go. I mean, this is a sign of the times, right? Pac-12, Starbucks, why not? Why not? Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Torrid. Torrid. Torrid trades under Curve, C-U-R-V. Shares jumped 32% today. So tell us about Torrid. Stock's finally trading above its recent IPO price of 21, trading at almost $25, there, 24 and a half, call it. But uh, the company reported its first quarter as a publicly traded company. And uh, for, so let's back up. What is Torrid? So Torrid... Um, claims to be the largest direct-to-consumer brand for plus-sized apparel and intimates for women in North America. They've got uh, um, curvy women as their customers. They've got Curve as their stock ticker. And they say they've got more than 3 million customers a year and about a billion dollars in sales. Um, and the, the company, after the public, you know, a big retailer, uh, no pun intended, uh, that they've got so much um, uh, trouble with supply chains like we've seen from so many others. These guys in particular make denim, dresses, intimates, footwear, activewear, um, you know, across the board, there was concern they just wouldn't have product to sell. So they came out today and announced those earnings. They said the revenue of $333 million in the quarter, up 34% over last year. And they do do an online business as well. Um, that's, you know, that they saw big growth in a big category uh, for these 90 million you know, plus-sized women in, in the U.S., which is their addressable market at least. Uh, and you saw the stock rally today because they just reported a really positive uh, quarter. Now, it's interesting here because they've had so much so much success that they're able to get people to come into the stores without having to promote as much, which gives them better margins. But the question, again, going into the back half of the year, 
how is this full-figured company going to manage uh, a world of lean inventory? Here's CEO Elizabeth Munoz. Um, I would say going into the back half, how will the customer respond? I think that she will be excited by what she's going to see, particularly in Q4, because it's fun, it's playful, it's sexy. Um, we are all hoping that we're going to have a Christmas where we can go out this year. So lots of dresses and things that she can buy for whatever celebration she intends to have. Um, as far as the, the being lean on product, um, this is not new to Torrid. Throughout Torrid's years of growth, because our growth was so outsized, we were always chasing product. We were always chasing this bigger, broader volume. So we're, we're kind of comfortable in this space. Um, and we know how to flex one direction or the other um, based on what we have um, inventory. And again, part of the game changer for us is this accessibility of ship from store, BOPIS. She can do Zoom consultations. Um, there's, and she can obviously shop online. So the inventory will be available to her in, in multiple ways, which we didn't have last year. And I think is a huge benefit this year. So that doesn't sound like any fear of inventory shortages at all, um, for this company because they've been growing so fast, you know, and always kind of dealing with a limited amount of inventory. They also talked in the conference call about uh, sort of going across, you know, it's not just one big season for them that, that, that they don't need a, a hot vax Christmas. You heard it here first. Should I trademark that? Hot Vax Christmas? I hope Hot Vax Christmas is nothing like Hot Vax Summer was supposed to be. Well, Hot Vax Summer was supposed to be pretty great. I'm hoping Hot Vax Christmas is a thing. Come on, Santa, come through. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Crown Holdings. Crown Holdings trades under CCK. Shares fell 3% today, but they've risen... 41% over the past 12 months. Tell me about Crown Holdings. So Crown Holdings makes beer cans and other kinds of cans. When I grew up, Isaac, there was a little factory in the center of the little town that I lived in for some part of my, my teen years. It's back in like 1910 or? By, about this when the, when the tin can was first invented. <laughs> yeah. And Billy Goats <laughs> were chewing on. Uh, the American Can Company had a factory in the center of Fairport, New York, a lovely uh -huh. little town in the Erie Canal. And it was a big employer there, and they made a lot of cans. Genesee Beer uh, went in inside of American Can Company cans. It did lots of stuff. Um, that company, uh, Crown Castle, uh, still makes beer. Was, was American Can was acquired by and sort of merged into Crown Castle, um, and uh, it Crown, became many other things. Crown Holdings. Well, Crown Holdings, excuse me. Crown Castle yep. was a spinoff that makes um, uh, cell phone towers. Right. Crown Holdings still makes beer cans. So to, let's talk about contagion, and I'm not talking about Corona for a change. The big news today wasn't necessarily about Crown. It was about Boston beer, known okay. for its Sam Adams beer. We talked about it back on episode 59 in late July when they announced they were slashing their expectations for the year because they couldn't sell their hard seltzer that they thought was going to be a huge engine of growth. Today, Boston beer, stock ticker Sam, S-A-M, uh, they came out and said that the deceleration of sales of hard seltzer is getting worse. And uh, in fact, they said the, for the full year, the hard seltzer market writ large was going to have 100 million fewer cases than estimated back in May, hmm. 30 million fewer than estimated in July. So the bottom's falling out of the hard seltzer market. And uh, 
That's a problem if you make the cans the seltzer goes into, which brings us back to the contagion to Crown Holdings. It's bad for Sam or it's bad for Boston beer. It's bad for beer can makers as well. Now, hard seltzer isn't beer, but it turns out beer sales and beer canned beer sales are also not doing great. Now, there were hints about this at the last Crown uh, conference call, I should say. Um, the uh, Now, cans are probably... 5% of uh, hard seltzer, a can's about 5% of the, um, or hard, I should say hard seltzer, is about 5% of the can market. So a substantial slowdown there on the margin is going to single digit hurt uh, the can makers. But with beer having the same kind of problems, domestic tax paid shipments of beer down 6.4% in July, second month of declines, just not good. That's all according to KeyBank's excellent packaging analyst, uh, Adam Josephson. So the concern here is, is what do we know about the can business and is a hard seltzer slowdown going to hurt the can business? Well, Tim Donahoe, the CEO of Crown Castle, on their last conference call, this goes all the way back to July, he was really like, it was just weird. He was like not answering questions and was asked specifically about a hard seltzer. And he went out with some long pauses and said, um, well, there's things, um, you know, there's a big base, but we shouldn't focus on growth rates. That's not a thing to focus on anymore. And um, I don't want to say some things. Listen to Tim Donahoe not want to say some things. Obviously, they're not going to ha- they're not going to have the same growth rates that they've had in the past, right? They've had tremendous growth rates, but they're growing off a a much larger base. So, from the standpoint from from a can company standpoint, there's sig- still significant unit volume growth, and um, sometimes we get we get hung up on growth rates and we forget about absolute unit volume growth and the contribution we get from that. Uh, there, you know, it, the demand has been a, across all products. Um, without saying something I don't want to say, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Well, now we, maybe we know what he didn't want to say, which is that the bottom has fallen out of the market. Because um, that now that didn't seem to hit Crown Castle yet, but uh, it does suggest that there are problems yet to come there. You know, I find this so surprising because, you know, in my own little bubble, I feel like everyone's drinking this hard seltzer. I personally don't like it. Because your friends are drunks, Isaac. Yeah. They're drunks. (laughs) Well, that goes without saying. But, you know, I I mean, I just, anytime someone's hanging out, they've always got a, a, what do you call it, a package? No, a a case of hard seltzer. It's, it's, you know, so I just, I'm like, wowed. I guess we just live in a- One case per person? I was joking about the drunks. Maybe I'm right. But no, I wasn't. I wasn't joking. I was. You were right. You're right on the money. Anyway. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Lululemon. Lululemon. Lululemon shares uh, trade under Lulu. L-U-L-U. Shares rose 10% today and they've risen almost 30% in a year. What's going on with Lulu? So they reported a quarter, and it was a really, really strong quarter. Over last year, 61% revenue increase to $1.5 billion. Their company-operated store is up 142%. Their direct-to-consumer stuff were up 8%. Um, you know, from the last quarter, they went, you know, as I said, they went from 1.2. They got to 1.5. That was from 1.2. Uh, and that was also 64% bigger than the 2019 quarter, uh, second quarter. So just strong across the board for these guys. Um, and new stores opening, they're up to eight, 534 stores, which is just a lot of stores. You know, the, 
the kind of magic number used to be 300. If you had up to 300 stores, you'd taken out all the kind of A mall space that there is. They're experimenting with smaller stores. They're experimenting with stores in all kinds of places. 534 stores is just a lot for any retailer. It's no longer a specialty retailer. It's a big business. But mm-hmm. the concern is, like all the other businesses, are they able to get stuff out of the problem? Are they able to deal with the shipping problems in the world, particularly in Vietnam, which we've been talking about for weeks here, and how much of their business comes from Vietnam? Turns out it's 30% of their finished goods comes from South Vietnam, uh, the southern Vietnam area, I should say. Um, and and uh, they're dealing with it by air freight. It's going to cost them a, a lot of margin, but they say they're going to have enough product in the stores uh, for the holiday season. Hot Vax Christmas, I said. <laughs> whether it's going to be, whether oh it's going to be Torrid or Lululemon, it's going to be Hot Vax Christmas. At least that's what CFO Megan Frank. Well, she didn't say Hot Vax Christmas until she listens to the show today. Then she'll start using that phrase. In the meantime, here's what she had to say about Vietnam and air freight and Lulu's reliance on southern Vietnam. Um, So in terms of of Vietnam, we source approximately 30 percent of our finished goods. um, And the impact of the southern Vietnam closure um, is currently impacting approximately 20 percent of our second half inventory. Um, We are um, leveraging air freight um, to meet our guidance. And what's contemplated in our guidance is 150 to 100, sorry, 150 to 200 basis points of deleverage um, for the full year in terms of air freight impact. Um, to the extent possible, um, the team is looking to multi-source and leverage other countries, um, as well as prioritize um, fall holiday key styles um, to the best of their ability. And air freight is is a muscle that, as a growth company, we often leverage, um, and we continue to do so as we navigate um, these supply chain challenges in the second half. Hot facts Christmas. Hot facts Christmas. I heard it. You know what else we love, Isaac? What? We we love you, Bitcoin. We love you, Bitcoin. <laughs> now, who was XRP. that? I've never heard that soundbite before. That's the sound of Jack Dorsey, who has absolutely nothing All to do right. with this next story, or almost right. nothing to do. But we do have the CEO of Voyager Digital um, a trading platform for crypto. The CEO joins us, Steve Ehrlich, to talk about Bitcoin, to talk about Ether, to talk about XRP. He has some really interesting comments to say about XRP, by the way, and we'll have all that when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T dot com to learn more. And the Drill Down is brought to you by Indeed. When you pay for a job site, you should know what you're getting. So get Indeed and pay only for quality candidates who meet the must-have requirements for that job. Don't just hope for a perfect candidate that that candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. With Indeed assessments, you can choose from 135 skill tests help you make sure you're finding applications from people with the skills you need. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined and one and a half times more hires than even internal candidates. So join more than three million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now. Drill Down listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Drill Down. That's right, a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Drill Down. That's Indeed.com slash Drill Down. Offer valid through September 30. Terms and conditions apply. 
Welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now by the CEO of Voyager Digital, Steve Ehrlich. Uh, Steve, glad to glad to have you on uh, the Drill Down Podcast. Um, tell me about your business and, and how do you guys make money? Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Corey. Really appreciate being here today and uh, uh, giving the, the listeners a little bit more about Voyager. We are an agency crypto broker. So what we've done is build uh, connections to multiple exchanges, market makers, liquidity providers, over a dozen of them at this point and bring a depth of liquidity across 60 plus cryptocurrencies to the marketplace to make it easy for people to access the marketplace and create wealth. But the real additional thing that we do for folks is that we let them earn rewards on 30 plus of the coins so they can actually earn a yield on more than 30. So you can really create wealth through cryptocurrencies uh, with our platform. And the most common uh, currency people use us for uh, besides Bitcoin and Ethereum is our USDC stablecoin, and they can earn 9% annual rewards on that as well. So you compare that to a bank. Uh, that's now, is, that, is that the coin that, uh, that Circle's created? That's the Circle uh, Consortium coin. Uh, we're partners with Circle. Uh, we bought a business from Circle uh, a little over a year ago. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so uh, safe to say, uh, it would be incorrect to summarize to say you're a trading platform for crypto? We are. We are uh, an online mobile only platform today for trading crypto. Yep. And so it's it's focused on consumers, not on, on institutional trading. We are strictly focused on retail consumers from a trading perspective. Yep. And and you compete with the likes of Coinbase and I suppose Binance. We do. Um, yeah, we do compete with them. But very interesting to me is that you've got a very different cost structure, right? For the for the for the individual trader, which is to say that 95% of Coinbase's revenues, and they are substantial, come from uh, from uh, charging for the trades, right, for commissions. You guys don't have any commissions. That's right. And where we really differentiate from uh, from Coinbase, which is the, the biggest player in the space and public company, as well as us, but the, you know, what they have is the commission. We are commission-free. We have a spread on every trade, so we're trying to find the best price for consumers on every single trade, but we're also agency, right? They're in, they're in exchange. Every trade comes back to their exchange. We act more like the traditional online brokers and we're connected to multiple exchanges and market makers. So we have a depth of liquidity that far exceeds what they have. Uh, they're part of our, our, our exchange network. Uh, so you can see how the depth that we have, which is more akin to the traditional equities and options markets. Which is to say an order comes into you from a consumer and then you very quickly shop the order to try to find a better price than the consumer put it. The consumer said, I want to sell my, my, you know, I want to sell three Bitcoin at $40,000. And you, if you can somehow find a, a price for $40,001 for those three, you sell it for 40, you keep the one, or if you can sell it for $50,000, you sell it for 40 and keep $10,000 per coin. Yeah. What we do on that is exactly right. And everything gets done in microseconds. So when right. the customer puts his order in, he's guaranteed that order. And if we can beat that, we give them some more back as price improvement, which is very well known in the equities world. Right. Uh, but in our world, you know, crypto, it's not there. And we're bringing that to the market and we give people a price better than what they thought they were going to get the trade at. And yet you which keep, we so do that but, probably but 75% of the time. Even a better price. Yeah. And, and yet, and yet some of that price improvement you keep and some of it you share with the customer. That's correct. That's exactly right. Yeah. So um, it's, it's such an interesting model. Uh, it, it seems like it also is, and you're right, you, we see it in the equity world a lot for those crypto people who don't know that are trading people. And I, you know, I, I strive to make this podcast about business, not about trading, because I think way yep. too much business journalism is like, look at this wiggly line. It tells you a lot. 
and it doesn't. That's not how businesses work. But in, in, from your perspective, when you look at the way that crypto is traded, do you see this great volatility that will allow, that allows wider spreads that would allow for more price improvement? That's a great question. You know, thank you. That's originally, we did, <laughs> originally, yes. You know, but we're seeing that volatility decrease a little bit here, and I think it varies versus different different of the uh, the cryptocurrencies sure. where. Some of them are, you know, the Bitcoin is becoming less volatile uh, and the spreads on that across multiple exchanges being tighter and tighter. Just because it's more volume, right? That's correct. It's just a a factor of the volume. The more volume there is, the more people participating, the tighter the spreads, the less volatility. But some of the less liquid coins, we're seeing, you know, wider spreads on that because there aren't as much people, you know, participating and buying and selling in that market. So that's, you know, that's why we built the model we did was because, we looked at it and said, over time, there's going to be less volatility. Uh, we think consumers need to be in this space. We can help them create wealth. Uh, and the model is completely different from the exchanges. How do you decide which um, cryptos, which coins, whatever you want to call them, uh, to trade in your platform? You've got about 40, is that right? We got 63. At 63 this pre- now. At the plus yeah. And a lot of it is is legal and regulatory, right? So we work with in, you know internal and external counsel. On uh, looking at the coins, uh, understanding that they're, you know, we believe that they're utilities and our analysis is utilities rather than security tokens. And that's when, you know, that's the guiding factor for us to bring coins to the market. But the then we look test. at the, the Howey test, uh, you know, which again is a hundred years old. So I don't know, it wasn't built, it was built around orange groves, uh, the Howey test. And, Should we take a minute <laughs> to talk about that for our listeners? So let's, the, there yeah, was let's, a Supreme Court ruling about a hundred years ago. Uh, and I know, and it, wait, I should back up and, and, and announce my bias. So uh, for about a year, a little bit, you got almost exactly a year, I worked for Ripple. Ripple is a company that uses a, a cryptocurrency called XRP um, in the in the pursuit of its sort of the, the way that its software works. Ripple software uses XRP to make some transactions happen. Um, and uh, Ripple is in the midst of an SEC lawsuit, and the, at the crux of that suit seems to be the application of a Supreme Court ruling called the Howey ruling for a Supreme Court justice named Howey. That was his last name. Um, and uh, and the Howey test was about some investments. Here I'm preaching now. I'll, I promise you, I want to get you in here. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Howey test, you're going to correct me too, uh, was about an investment in an orange grove. And people were buying uh, a, a, a something. They were buying a piece of the orange grove or something, an investment contract, and the Howie, the people, the Orange Grove said, this is not an investment contract. And and the Howie test looked at the thing and said, it is an investment contract. You are buying, this is a security. You're selling a security. I don't care what you call it. And here are the four parts of the test. Now, Steve, what are those four parts of the test? Oh, I don't remember the four parts, but I'll tell you what, the, the fact that we're thinking, and you and I are sitting here talking about an orange grove from 1933 of a ruling. 1946 uh, was a ruling, yes. All right, so 46. I was off a little bit, but you know, 80 years, you know, 75, 80 years ago, and we're still using that as an application for how things are today. Seems a little bit odd to me. I mean, uh, you know, Alexander Graham Bell built the the first phone, right? And we're not using that phone anymore. Uh, you know, so well, we don't even have phone. We don't even use phone lines, right? I mean, effectively, it's internet. My kids don't even use their phone to make calls unless they want money. Um, And I I misspoke. I said Howie was uh, Supreme Court Justice. Howie was the Howie Company, and they sold these tracks of oranges. And I'll I'll, I'll give you the four because I've had to go through this and write about this. But the the uh, it it became a security investment contract if it was an investment of money. It was a common enterprise. There was an expectation of profit, 
And, and the work, this is the important part to me, is the work was derived from others. So what, what the, How, the Howie company said, look, just because we pick all the oranges from the orange grove, they can come pick their own oranges, but nobody actually did. And so because you were buying a piece of the profits of the sale of the oranges because you owned a track, but somebody else was picking them, that made the, the you'd expected a financial return, you invested money to do it. It was all the same business, right? It was all this singular uh, orange grove. But importantly, the, the way the company made money was somebody else's work, not the work of the investor. And so, well, so you, you, are, you have your lawyers applying that test to the things you decide to trade. Presumably you do not trade XRP while it's in the midst of this, uh, this suit uh, with, the, with the SEC, or the ripples in the midst of the suit, I should say, over the oh, definition to, of XRP. To, yeah, to, yeah to, to a lot of our customers want us to trade the XRP, but we have to take the cautious approach. I mean, they're in that lawsuit to do it. I always make, I always come back and say the, the Howie test, you know, 75 years ago, uh, people have been buying and selling baseball cards for how long? And, you know, if you try to apply the Howie test to it, that might actually apply to that, you know, baseball cards being a security too. So um, it's based upon how well the athlete does the value of that card, right? I mean, um, yeah, perhaps. If, yeah, interesting. So I, I think we just, as everything in the regulatory environment and, I appreciate all the work that uh, the SEC does in this space because there are there are a lot of players that are not you know super cooperative or playing by the rules. There were some shady uh, guys doing these ICOs, dumping this junk, and and heading for the exits. And some of them literally have disappeared off the map. Um, and it and I you know well let me put you on the spot here. So if XRP if this suit with Ripple is resolved in some way and it is determined by the SEC or the court settles in some way to decide that it's not a security, would you trade it? Absolutely, I think if. Yeah, we would turn it right. We turn it back on uh, right away uh, because I think that if it's not a security and the courts decide it's not a security, that means it's a utility and would be available for people to trade again. And you know, I think there are a lot of people that are still holding their XRP uh, on our platform because we shut it off and they just said, "Let me hold it." Uh, they could transfer it, you know, somewhere. Maybe you know, one or two other platforms maybe allow people to trade it. But people are holding it because they expect XRP not to be a security and therefore expect it to be, you know, much higher in price. I mean, that's the beauty of, you know, the markets here is that people are, you know, they take positions. And I think the markets have changed, not just in the crypto market, but the equity markets have changed, too. And people have a, a risk exposure. More and more people have a bigger opportunity to accept risk in their trading and their investing every day than they ever did. When I started, you know, 30 something years ago, you know, the expectation was just put your money into 401k plans and that'll grow 10% a year and less trading. But the electronification of the markets, uh, you know, when you went to the, the you eliminated negotiated commissions in 1975, yeah. you know, these things all make it easier for people to trade. And I think now the risk profile for a lot of millennials and Gen Z is they're willing to take a little bit more risk when it comes to crypto or equity trading. Yeah, it, it is interesting the, the, that risk, those risk takers who lived through 2008, right? Who saw these and saw, some of them who just came of age at that point and saw um, that, that sort of change in, in the understanding of risk. But there are also, in fact, people who've been in the market who've never seen a 20% correction and, and they've been in their entire professional career. I, I think I've seen quite a, you know, a couple of those. Uh, I remember my, <laughs> I always tell the story. My very first day of work out of college uh, was the October crash of 87. Oh very goodness. first day. Oh, my goodness. Walking down on 40th and Broadway. I was a public accounting. 
and walking back to Long Island Railroad to go go home on Long Island. And that was the day the market just crashed. And I didn't know, you know, bright eyed, 22 year old, like, oh man, this is great. I'm getting a paycheck. And then you just see people with the most miserable faces on. Uh, and you're taking a train yeah. home where, where, where it was crazy. And that was, uh, that's when everything kind of changed. Markets, things started to develop differently from there. Yeah. But that yeah. was my first day of work. Uh, so uh, this is the moment of the, the drinking game on our show is whenever I mention an ex-girlfriend, my ex-girlfriend, Stephanie, <laughs> was a, was, that was her first work week working as a specialist on the floor of the New York Stock oh. Exchange. And it was supposed to be just a clerical job. And she was there behind a booth getting buried in orders. So that at that time they took a lot, it does, wasn't that long ago, but many of the orders were written by hand by the specialists yep. and they had these little notebooks. They would call them, in fact, they would, they, when they went for the traders that they kept them, they called them Vinny pads informally because in, inevitably the trader was named Vinny. So they kept these Vinny pads with the orders on them. And as soon as the order was executed and entered, entered into the dot system, oh, that was pre-dot system, but as soon as they entered into the computer, they'd throw it on the ground. Well, she left work that day at eight o'clock at night, four hours after the, you know, it was later than 10 o'clock at night, she says, and uh, it was it was after the, the mark, well after the market closed, up to her waist in these papers, in these little slips of paper that had been cast onto the floor because they had so much trading volume then. That that was just a crazy day. and and But you're bringing up like the, way things were traded, that was all pre-electronic. It was all phone business, call down on the floor, call to the specialist. Specialists would uh, run over to the booth, make the trade. Yeah, and you'd see deep, you know, deep pits uh, at each of the specialists. Um, and, you know, obviously pricing was different at that point. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in the market. And, well, that's yeah, why, the and that's why I bring it up here when, as we look at crypto, right? Because there are, when I, when I read through your, your SEC filings, or your CEDAR filings, because you're listed in Canada, yeah. about to get a bigger listing, which is the big news while we're, when we're running this, yeah. while we're running this podcast when we are, um, the uh, I see, I don't see that. I, I don't see the I, I see in the spreads of the business, the old business of Wall Street, where spreads were wider and better execution meant a profit for both both the trader and the customer. I see that in the business in the crypto business right now. But when I read your your filings, I see E Trade. And I know you worked at E-Trade, but I really do see a lot of the sort of common ideas of E-Trade from the 1990s. Yeah, look, I think a couple of things related to that. Definitely, I spent seven years, and I call it the formative years of E-Trade. We got there, we sold our company to E-Trade in 99, and I stayed till 06. And Jarrett Lillian, who was my boss and wound up being the CEO of E-Trade for a period of time, we kind of created the brokerage side and helped really put brokerage process and procedures into there. And we bought the market maker for E-Trade way back in the day. So I want to hear all the conversations about payment for order flow going away. I'm like, just go buy a market maker if you're in that business. Build a market maker and you'll protect your spreads. Uh, you know, I took a lot of that stuff that we learned and built at E-Trade. And that's how we, we formed Voyager. And that's how my co-founders and I, the basis for it was what we saw in the past and bring to this market. But when it comes to spreads, they may tighten a little bit here, as I said. But the same thing is you got a global market here. The equity markets are controlled in the U.S. with a national best bidder offer, and everything's you know one market. You can't trade Apple stock on the London Stock Exchange. You trade the Apple stock on the U.S. exchange. Crypto is traded on global exchanges, so there'll never be a national best bid and offer because it's a global offering, and therefore spreads will always be there. Be always be some sort of spreads available in in the marketplace because of that because it's not one exchange. And then there will always be so many exchanges that there's just inevitably more about volatility. That's the bet you're taking. That that is exactly the bet, and and why we're so so bullish on our business and bullish on on where we're going with the business over the long term. So let me ask you finally. So you're you're doing this kind of uplisting on the Toronto Stock Exchange. 
you've clearly got your, you're talking to me from New York City right now. You've clearly got an eye on trading in the, in the U.S. at some point in the future, I would imagine. But why be public at all at this point? You know, it served us really well. We did a reverse takeover of a company in 2018 and got the approval on the Toronto Venture Exchange in, in February 2019. And in my experience as an, as an equities investor and analyst, when I see reverse merger, Canadian exchange, that, that those companies smell to high heaven. I'm not saying that yours does. I wouldn't have you on the show if I thought that you did. But but usually there's a lot of junk in those those kind of uh, deals. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in why you wanted to go that way. Trust me, we had to fight through a lot of that, but we had a lot of friends and family and some venture capitalists that invested in us because they saw the bigger picture. They saw that we always wanted to access the public markets. We felt the transparency of being a public company was good for crypto. Like we felt that if we were going to be in this space, we wanted to be as transparent as possible to retail consumers. And nothing is more transparent than audited financials and having a public company oversight. So we always said that that was the route to go. And, and it, it's played well for us. I mean, we've increased our market cap quite a bit. Now we're gonna to go to the Toronto Stock Exchange, but the, you know, and then Coinbase followed us. Coinbase went public too. So we felt it was the, the, the best way to get people, if we were gonna challenge some of the big guys back in 2018 and 19, we had to be open and transparent with who we were. And being a public company was our way to show that to the world that we're open and transparent. And and why, why does that advantage you? Well, because I think when customers, you don't know where your assets are when you're on some of the non-public exchanges, right? You're putting money into a company and saying, I'm going to go buy this cryptocurrency. You're hopeful that those assets are there. Each quarter, our financials are reviewed by auditors and it's, it's audited on an annual basis. So you know that's there. You know what we're saying is actually true. And that's played very, very well for us. So why not list in the U.S. where the accounting standards are, are even stricter and, and the reporting requirements even stricter? We're working towards that. We're on the OTC markets now in the U.S. So we have an right. obligation to file the same reports that we file in Canada on the OTC markets. And we're working towards uh, a NASDAQ listing. Uh, we believe that's the next uh, next uplist for us after the Toronto Stock Exchange is to get to NASDAQ and be on the U.S. market. And and finally, let me get back to the, the business that you have with your token as well that, that you use as a reward system. Uh, without going too deep in the weeds, give me the, give me the one-minute version of that. I believe all rewards programs, loyalty programs in the future will be done on the blockchain. It's easy to manage. It's easy for consumers to see what they have. Uh, easy for them to use. And we built our program around airlines, hotels, coffee shop rewards programs, but we just do it on the blockchain. And it's, again, we've built an extremely loyal community. Uh, about 500 of our most loyal uh, community members have, have started their own room called the VGX Heroes. And that's just about building this loyalty to is the platform and the company. It is on uh, on Instagram, VGX Heroes. Oh, interesting. Oh, amazing. So, uh, it was super interesting. Well, you guys are growing up this business really fast too. Um, so it's interesting to see. We'll keep an eye on you guys as you uh, as, as you go join the Toronto Stock Exchange. Interesting stuff. From Voyager Digital CEO Stephen Ehrlich. Steve, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Coming up next on the Drill Down, the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. I'm going to tell you how many customers these guys already have. It's a really big number and it's growing fast. We'll have that Drill Down Bite when the Drill Down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. 
connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And we hope you're listening to The Drill Down every single day. One of the ways you can listen to it is on Listen Notes, one of the new platforms to add our, our podcast. If you do listen on Listen Notes or any other platform, click subscribe and follow us so you can download every episode and not miss a single show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, time for that Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Voyager Digital has, here's the number, 275,000 funded accounts at the end of March. Big number. Uh, that was the end of their, their fiscal year or their fiscal third quarter, I should say. Huge number and growing at 600% over the previous quarter. So, Isaac, these guys are That's growing, growing fast. Yeah. So, you've got an update on that number? Uh, we are continuing our growth quite well. I'll just leave All it right. at that. Very coy. diplomatic, Steve. Very coy. We're at the edge of our seat. Hope you are too. Or if you're standing, that's fine too. Walking the dog, however you're listening to the podcast. But you have been listening to The Drill Down, and we appreciate it. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.